Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, but tonight, you're here to see Catherine Kirkwood. And as a little treat, our pub the publisher of Catherine's book, um, Eloise Klein-Healy, will introduce the reading tonight. Um, Eloise established Arctoy Books to publish literary works of high quality by lesbian writers. Um, after the reading, we'll do a Q&A, and then we'll sign some books. Um, books are available up at the front. We have a couple back here. If you grab one of these, just make sure you buy it on the way out. And if you, <laughs> if you liked the reading tonight, um, buying a book helps us keep open and keep having readings like this, so that would be neat. Um, so again, thank you very much for coming, and here is Eloise. Hello, everybody. This is one of my favorite places in the world, so I'm very happy today about that, being here, but I'm also very happy to be able to introduce um, Catherine Kirkwood to you. Um, I first was introduced to her when I opened a manuscript and pulled out her um, information from, the, from a letter that she sent with the manuscript. And I found out that although she currently lives in Seattle, she was born here and lived here for a long time in her life. She, um, she had a book that kept coming back. Uh, you know, sometimes you read a book and there's a voice in it that you think, hmm, yeah, okay, okay, fine, I can, yeah, I get it, okay. And then um, if you stay with that voice, you discover that what's really going on is much more sophisticated than you originally thought. And that um, this particular writer has a lot of skill and a very um, good eye and a very good ear for dialogue. So I usually, when I read manuscripts, I have a little pile of my special ones, and I put it in the special one. And as we got down to five, that one just kept being in that pile, and finally it became the one that I chose. So I lived with this book a long time, and I think I lived with it because I thought the characters were so amazing and so complicated. Um, Catherine is now living in Seattle, as I think I said, and she works as a cancer researcher. She has a PhD from the University of York in Great Britain, and she went to Goddard, which is a very well-respected MFA program. One of the oldest, I might add. Um, so today, I think you're in for a magical treat. Uh, not that it's going to be an easy treat, but I hope that you will have lots of good questions at the end. And I want to introduce my pal, Catherine Kirkwood. <laughs> so nice. Well, thanks everyone for coming out tonight. And I gotta say, there's nothing better than being in Eloise's special pile. Because <laughs> it's been a really wonderful experience um, 
she picked up, picked up my book with uh, Arctoy Books. She's just dedicated a lot of love and respect to it. And um, people say to me when I say, oh, I just published a novel, they say, oh, you know, that's something everybody dreams of. And, you know, the road in writing is never straight and it's always sort of mysterious. And when you get to where you've been aiming, it's sort of this surprise. But it really is true coming out having this book come out through Arcto Books has been a dream because Eloise has treated it so, so well. So um, I feel good about that. Um, and it's great to be back in LA. Um, it's a nice homecoming. So I appreciate everybody. So many friendly faces and new faces in the, in the audience tonight. It's really nice. Um, so I'm going to read tonight from uh, each of, there's, the cutaway is told from three first person narratives and it's about three women in search of a runaway teen. Um, and as th they don't know each other and their lives intersect as they search for the girl uh, and they end up coming face to face with the things that they are searching for in themselves. Um, and I'm going to be reading from each of those persons, people's perspectives. Um, the first one is, oh, there's a cat in here. That's lovely. <laughs> How perfect. All right. Freddie? Franny. Oh, okay. Um, the first person I'm reading from tonight is, is Alexandra, and this is how the novel opens. And Alexandra is uh, one of the last people in the novel to have seen Olivia before she disappears. And she lives out at the Salton Sea. Um, the lake is a mirror with clean pink sky in it. I stand at the water's edge, feeling the slow tilt away from salinity reported by ecologists. It will take years. But she could recover to become that fresh sporting jewel imagined in her heyday. It's what I love about the lake. Not the dream of what she could be, or the failure of that dream, but that she stretches out between the two and settles there. I lift up my arms, saluting the morning's sensuous blush. When I turn, there is a woman watching me. She stands by her car on the dirt in nice little Blahnik flats and fresh white linen pants. I recognize the look. It's the kind of neatly turned trick I used to try out myself, but I was too lanky and angular for it. The clothes look like they were slipping off a bent hanger. But this woman has it just right. A slim, compact body, simple jet black hair, nails trimmed short, and done in a modest pink. It all works together as if she's sewn right in. I was about to go past her to the shop and shoot the breeze with Mary. She works the shop on Tuesdays. The rest of the time, she runs the science lab in the local elementary school. We talk about everything, the atmosphere on the moons of Mars, how elephants scatter the bones of their dead, why scientists make structures that miles long to see what happens when tiny particles go very fast. All the strangest laws of the universe, it turns out, are packed into the smallest measures. Mary, too, is more than she appears, more than the canned soup and the dusty band-aid boxes she sells part-time from her cousin's mini-mart, more than her plain little wooden house with a green cement lawn on Biloxi Road where we sit on hot afternoons and drink homemade ginger ale. She always knows something new about the, the world and how it fits in among the other mysteries. Nothing is ever the way you think it's going to be. That's why I watch the woman for a moment and don't just go on past. When a stranger comes to town and stands dumb face at the side of things, I wonder why. Will, she, will they stay, stay a while or get in their car, roll up the windows and head off to the highway? This stranger seems caught, unable to take things in or turn away. So I stop 
and tell her about the Colorado, the Colorado River breaking from its banks. She doesn't seem to hear me. Her skin is purling with heat, but she remains composed, a perfect image of herself. She, her stare sees and unsees me in one go. I suspect this is her manner, but it's also something I bring out in people. I tell her to drink water, thinking she'll crack a smile and thank me, but she looks even more confused. Like a stunned bird blown off course, the native creatures just bewilder her. We're getting nowhere. I smile and turn to go. That's when she calls out, wait, have you seen this girl? She's hooked me with a neat twist. I turn to look. Her jaw is slack, lips dry and parted. When she runs her hands across her forehead, her brow smears with a fine, blonde, lakeside dust. I remember the feeling from when I first came to the lake, like the heat was swallowing me. She really should get somewhere cool. It's summer. The heat will spike to over 100 by mid-afternoon. Stepping toward, toward me, she holds a flyer up. For a moment, I see Olivia's face. Then the woman stumbles, falls out of her sandal, hops and winces, dangling her foot above the sand. I don't want to bring her home. I'm careful who I invite into my life. There are steps to follow, intentions to sift, a slow circling measure of whether things seem right. But this woman is bleeding, dehydrated, and confused. She stares at me when I offer to take her to my place. Then when I nod for her to unlock her car, she blinks and says nothing. It's unlocked, so I get in. The engine's running, the air conditioning's on high, and tinted windows seal out the glare from the lake. She gets in too and pulls out of the lot. Too late, I realize, I could have taken her to Mary. She works with third graders, uh, third through sixth graders, and is good with confused, defenseless people. Instead, I direct her through the streets, lean back into the soft, cool leather. She keeps glancing over me, sizing me up. She opens her mouth to say something, then closes it and looks back at the road. We glide along like tourists. She waits out in the garden where there isn't any shade while I rummage through my medicine cabinet. A tube of calendula salve, a tincture of hypericum. I try to stay as herbal as I can, except for the hormones. The relationship I have with a squat row of plastic jars and box of glass vials is give and take, candy-shelled goblins. I've accepted their terms, the curves of my body for my old age. It is curious that the woman does not follow me in. It's cooler here during the mornings, sickly hot in the late afternoon. Perhaps she would be uncomfortable inside the four plain walls. The place is small and close, but I always keep the windows clean and the light outside is bright. It does not feel closed in. The furniture is a little shabby. The worn couch has a bright Mexican throw of turquoise, yellow, and brown. Even that's looking stretched and faded. On the coffee table is a kitsch lamp from the 60s with a battered red shade. Like the walls, the floor is also thin. Footsteps are carried throughout. Because of this, I always feel the rooms are joined together in a way they aren't in other places. When I go back out, I take her a glass of cold water. She thanks me and drinks it down. I clean and bandage her foot. Her heels are smooth, her to toenails trimmed and painted pale pink. Her trousers, rolled up to the knee, are lined in silk and have a luxurious drape. 
Her presence swamps the small, sun-weary courtyard. When I send her home, I think that's all there is. I don't tell her about Olivia. That was six months ago. A chance encounter that came to nothing happens all the time. But weeks later, when a young woman's body is found that could be Olivia's, I don't think twice. I call her. That's when I get the feeling we're walking on a common floor, me in one room, Eleanor in another. So that is the opening of the novel. And now I'm going to read a piece from Olivia's mother. And Olivia, uh, Asa is Olivia's mother. And Asa actually stole Olivia from birth and raised her as her own, which she never disclosed to Olivia. So when Olivia runs away, she's very haunted, as any mother would be, by the departure of her daughter, but even more so because she never uh, shared this truth with her. I don't like coming in here. It's full of secrets, my daughter whispered to the ceramic ears of her kitten, the white rabbit or the spaniel she called Lady. Moonlight slaps the low single bed, the wooden chair, and the dresser where the animals cast long, strange shadows. Surfaces jump up out of the darkness in white, clean light. They shudder as if pulling free. It is dazzling, like pooled electric current. For a moment, I think I see her standing by the window, and then she's gone. She was my teacher's daughter, just like my own baby would have been if my blood hadn't crested and flushed it away. The teacher's wife already had twins and a house and a husband. What did I have besides Olivia? I knew enough to expect that people won't always see things how they really are. Most were as, are as scared as I was back then, a teenage girl, Baby clamped to her chest, running toward dark. Can't see what's right in front of them. I should leave her things alone. I found the doctor's card and jeans scrunched up in the back of the dresser drawer. Even if I put it back in the pocket and ram the jeans in again, I can't help thinking she'll know when she comes back. I don't stop looking, though, even when it leads nowhere. The card came from the place in Santa Monica, the clinic. I've been cleaning nights there for a couple years. Olivia used to come with me sometimes and read the magazines. Mostly I work in ugly places, cramped, stuffy offices and cement buildings with sour-smelling carpet. But this one is nice. They do facelifts, boob jobs, that sort of thing. Why would she have their card? After I find that card in Olivia's pocket, the clinic seems different when I go to clean. Tonight, I should already be vacuuming the doctor's office, getting in along the ridges of the baseboard like they tell me to, in notes, never in person. Instead of cleaning, I flick through the magazines, trying to see what Olivia was so interested in. But all I find are women so beautiful, they've never had to worry a day of their lives. What was she looking at? An easy night, I only have this one place, but it has to be done just right or they'll call the agency. Still, it's just the seven rooms and one is behind a steel door with thick, a thick little window where the doctor does her surgeries. I don't go in there. I start vacuuming in the waiting room, put an empty bag so I'll know I'll get every single little flake of dead skin or hair or chewed fingernail. First one in direction all the way across and then back at right angles all the way back and overlapping so you don't get lines in the carpet. 
The trick is to make it look like it's this way all the time, like no one had to work at it. I empty the trash, paper espresso cups and subscription cards from magazines. I polish handprints from the arms of chairs, dust the walls, lift cushions and vacuum underneath. I wipe down glass surfaces, the windows, the mirrors, the tabletops, the glass wall between the waiting room and the front office. It's critical that I don't leave a trace, not a smudge, not even the scent of cleaner, cleaner, especially scent. Nowadays, people won't tolerate that sort of thing. I finish up cleaning later than usual. The sky gets light so early now. Daylight is the worst time. I look around, taking the glow of the clinic's white shingles and the hanging pink blooms that look like bruises in the dim light. I think, why not? Why the hell not? I go back to my car and throw on some clothes I've got in the back of my in the back and th <laughs> I've got in the trunk. Excuse me, nice pants and a blouse I've been meaning to take to the dry cleaners. They're a little wrinkled, but they look okay. I wait a while, trying to smooth out my clothes, watch the cars that pull into the parking lot and the people who get out. When I tell, can tell the clinic's good and busy, I go in. A squat, square-faced receptionist looks up from the desk and motions me over. I tell her I don't have an appointment. I can ask the doctor, but I think you'll have to come back another time, she says without smiling. Fill these out. She passes me a clipboard already made up with papers. I glance at the waiting room. Two others are lined up reading magazines. One's blonde, so wispy in her business slacks and white, thin white blouse, you'd think she'd blow away. The other is a redhead with a boyish bob. She's in shorts and a tee, muscular, sporty, no nonsense. They're both very pretty and young. I can't make any sense of it. What are they doing here? I fill out the forms, but I'm not going to hand them in. This was a mistake. I'm going to tell the receptionist, never mind. But before I know it, she calls my name and leads me down the hall. Eleanor Renault. The doctor reaches one hand out and puts another on the polished desk, leaving a handprint. She's lean and sleek, smaller than I imagined, almost my size, but more polished. She grips my hand and then gestures to the little couch, too cushy for my liking and too white. But there's nowhere else to go. Even when I sit up, my feet don't reach the floor. I keep falling in. The doctor's confidence is as smooth as her good looks. Black hair pulled tightly from a heart-shaped face and smart, pale blue eyes. She's quick to scan my face, and then, with a flick of her eyes, my chest, waist, and legs, as if I can be totaled up and fit in alongside the rest. Nice place. Clean, nice. <laughs> I nod and look around me as if the, this is the first time I'm taking it in. On the carpet beneath her desk, there are marks where I was careless with a vacuum. In a corner where the wall meets the ceiling, there is a single strand of cobweb caught in the morning light. Her brow rises in neat little ripples. She asks me what I'm here for. I don't answer. She taps the eraser of the pencil against the desk. Scuff marks, polka dot, the sheen. They just hover on the wide, dark surface, not quite joined to anything. It's that bright in here. Finally, she turns the pencil on its point and looks at me with cool urgency, as if to say, 
It's your choice. You can do what you want with your free 20 minutes. I feel it now, that pressure to say something. Only the pressure is coming from inside of me. I straighten up, check myself, and take note. She's good at this. She doesn't know that I'm a mother, that I raise a child, that I'm alone. She doesn't know anything about me at all. I want to ask her about Olivia, but I'm just a client, stripped of everything outside this room. It doesn't feel good, but it's not bad either. I stall. I just need a pick-me-up. She nods. I wonder what she's got going on outside of here. A husband who's older but getting more distinct with, with age. A big house with a pretty yard. Two teenage girls who squeal over boyfriends and makeovers and college entrance exams. She comes and lifts my face toward the light. Her palms against my chin are cool and silky. I close my eyes and see the outline of her shape in the afterglow of light. It's been a long time since my face was touched. Her voice is smooth and calm. Well, let's see what we can do, shall we? So that is the first time that Asa meets Eleanor, who's a plastic surgeon, obviously, living in, in Santa Monica. Um, and Eleanor is the third narrator of the novel. And she um, is a very well-respected plastic surgeon in LA. And, um, but has been, since she, about the time she met Olivia, um, when she met Olivia, she reached out to the girl because she felt that she was somewhat um, troubled and she wanted to help her and she wasn't able to connect with Olivia and then she later discovered she was a runaway and had disappeared and that haunted Eleanor and it haunted her at about the same time then many things were changing in her life um, and she's begun to wonder whether personally and professionally she's still at the top of her game. At the patio's edge sand-colored slate gives way to dirt a few feathery grasses and shrubby, scrubby chaparral. Two green eyes gaze boldly from pointy wheat and fur. Loose dog? Doesn't look familiar. Then I see the gaunt torso, long legs, and wary stance. Coyote. I sip my wine. The workers are finishing up, trying to stay quiet while they sweep out the day's mess. It's been a long time since a coyote ventured in so close. Sometimes I hear them late at night, their babies peeling off strange yips, spiraling upward toward a weird dog-based harmony. Strange togetherness they have. It's hard not to imagine their tight faces lifted to, lift to the slim wild that splits open with dark, silent paws pacing the boundary of a shrinking territory. This one looks worried, hungry, and bold with it. It will get him shot or poisoned. Coyotes are no friend to the owners of cats and small dogs. I move slowly and sit at the pool's rim. He steps back, one paw hung, but does not turn. His eyes a feverish jade, like nightfall suspended by city lights. He regards me cautiously. For a moment, the simplicity of his brief and feral life fills me. Everything falls away. The girl, the remodel, Clarissa, I am just an imprint on pale green eyes. Inside the house, a door slams. The coyote turns, leaps over a shrub, darts right, and bounds away through the hillside brush. 
I light a cigarette. Just one, just tonight. Time to break, break the rotten connections. It was Clarissa's habit. Why are the one, those the ones that are so hard to break? How had I let this happen? The company of this question is getting old, but I take another long drag and invite it in. It's been almost a year since she walked out. The attorneys still haggle, hers arguing she's entitled to half, mine that we were just two independent women making our own ways in the world. She's supposed to sign the settlement papers this week. We've been there before. Seems longer than the 12 years we were together. Tired, triumphant voices echoed out from the back of the house as the contractors clear out. Hey, I stub the cigarette out and call through the house. There's a cold one in the fridge for everyone. Why not? I could use a little company. I get up, go inside, and call out the invitation again. They respond in chorus. Sorry, gotta go. Can't, take a rain check though. Great. It's the small one who's willing. She is fair and solid, all lean and taut beneath wispy bangs. I smile as I peer into the work zone. They've finished framing the last wall. It's all there now, the shape of the new room. I make her wear her tool belt, though I can tell by the smirk as she slips it over her naked hips, she's humoring me. So what? I ride that lithe, scrambling body and do not bother to make her come. She's could, she could, she's ready, shy and eager, the sardonic attitude all bluff. Afterwards, we have gin and tonics, no craving for a second smoke. When the girl leaves, the sky is still muddy with dusk. Weeks pass and the renovation progresses, but not in a way that pleases me. Despite the compliments of contractors and the obvious pleasure of the architect who has asked the to photograph the job for her portfolio, I feel as if we've made a wrong turn, but I can't figure out how to fix it. The dissatisfaction spills over into work. I see clients like caricatures of shame, sorrow, disillusion. The past courses through them like rough current. Sometimes they come too late. Patterns wired hard inside musculature. Habit will drag them back. Everywhere, things that were once a matter of course have begun to seem not. Cases I would have breezed through at initial consultation get muddied. I keep wondering what I'm fixing. Even surgery is no longer as pleasurable. I keep thinking about the bits I throw away, wondering whether they're part of something more, a thing I'm meddling with. One morning I wake after a good sleep. No lucid dreams, no waking in the night. Surgery starts with a new client, the mousy one who came in for a consult a few weeks back. Asa is hungry for change, so eager her skin is alive with heat. Marking her face before surgery is not necessary. My hands have performed this kind of work many times, but I will document this one, revive the portfolio, a fresh face, a new start. The pen rolls smoothly, smoothly beneath the rise of her cheek. She soaks this up like everything else. Her eyes are closed, not in that tense, jittery way so typical of clients at their first surgery. Her face is relaxed, open, angelic. When she smiles, it is the smallest ripple. I will begin with an incision above the temple deep in the hairline. Once the muscles are tightened, the excess folds of skin can be cut away. I draw a line where the chin, 
beneath her chin where the skin sags to highlight what will be accomplished. The autofocus locks red. Before releasing the shutter, I notice again that vague smile on her lips. The lines above will predict the lines above predict lean, crescent-shaped cheeks and a flare at the edge of the eyes, shapes of youth, vigor, energy. She will look in the mirror and feel better about a lot of things. It is right that she smiles. I press the button and the flash, flash thrusts into the space between us. Her eyes fly open, wide and staring. The pupils, contracted by the light, are tiny and remote as if the inside of her has fallen away. Then she blinks and adjusts. She says, I can feel it already. Yes, I am beguiled. She is so full of hope. You must feel like a million bucks at the end of every day. Her voice hums like water to a tap. I laugh, sometimes only a couple of grand. I step toward her with a mask. What you do for people? Her small eyes tuck back into her round, freckled face as she closes them. Her hair is short, red-brown and wiry. She could be puckishly cute, but there is something calcified in the shape of her jaw and the rise of her cheek, a rigidity that softens as she goes under. When she is out, she keeps on smiling that loose, secret smile. I can't shake the look of her. It is surprising, enchanting to be reminded how much progress can be made even before the procedure begins. I do not make the deep openings from which pain or death is meant to be extracted. I have always stayed outside the cage a human body is packed in. But in strange, rare moments like this, I feel in awe of the thing I am setting free. It has been a long time. To catch sight of this sensibility excites me. I like working with Asa. Her eyes will be a challenge. Both upper and lower lid require shaping. The result is as much affected by the amount and elasticity of the skin as the structure of the sphenoid and fissures of the skull. Not an uncommon procedure, but tricky. I feel strangely nervous. I move faster than I should. My mind is not yet fixed on the outcome and my hands are impatient. My thoughts try to keep up. When I touch the scalpel to her lid, it is too soon. No matter, keep moving. My hands know the way. The knife follows the line, and the skin tips its smooth, scarlet edge outward. I look down into the opening. The patient's eye twitches. The hole pulls tight, then slack. My hand jitters. The knife skips. A jagged red grin. It's crazy where these characters come from. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting because in some ways, um, they came from, so actually there was a point where Asa and Eleanor were, I can't really remember this, but I, I, how this happened, but they were one person. And um, I 
was working with someone who read it at the time who misinterpreted that and thought they were two people. And that sort of led me to this new place of experimenting, well, what, what are what would happen if they were two people? And um, I've sort of followed that a lot with this book of just experimenting what would happen and and they really just um, rose out of that. And uh, some voices like Aces was very, Aces was very clear to me and was the one that I could sit down and write out with almost no problem at all. And the other two and, and particularly Eleanor's was a bit more of a challenge for me and I'm, I'm not sure why that is but um, yeah, I don't know if, that, if you had more particular question, but they, it's sort of mysterious where they come from. And it, um, in this book, for me, it was just a lot of experimenting and seeing what worked and what needed to drop away and um, what sort of remained and kept haunting me and I had to go back to. So, yeah. Hey, hi. <laughs> oh, near and dear friend of mine. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah. Um, I read that your family is very science and math based, and that yes. you also do work in cancer research, so yeah. that seems very scientific. Was this a way to kind of break from science, or did it inform it at all when you wrote it? Well, I think, you know, the part about plastic surgery was, it, it certainly gave me, like, reading, I don't know anything about plastic surgery, I don't know much about surgery, so I did a lot of research about that at the beginning, which gave me kind of this nice, technical, but also poetic language um, as a scaffolding to start, and it felt very comfortable, um, even though I don't know surgery, but that, just everything being very, you know, explained and laid out and clear um, was a comfortable way to begin. Um, but I think, you know, science, working in my day job in science and then coming home and writing fiction at night is a really nice balance for me because I do have that side of science that's just embedded in me, in my genes, from my family, that is great and, um, and I can go to work every day and solve puzzles, um, logical puzzles, which sort of wears out that part of the mind that wants to control the work too much if I don't do it. Um, so then I can come up with fiction and that controlling part of my mind is all worn out from the day and I can let it go a little bit and let, that's the hardest part for me for writing is sort of letting something emerge without trying to think too far ahead of time of how does this fit in and how am I going to make this work and then controlling it too much. Um, so it's nice to have, to have the two to balance each other, yeah. Yeah, thanks. Did you have a favorite character? <laughs> you know, it changes. I, um, I had loved Asa because her voice was so clear to me and I could just sit and write her. Um, so I think when I was writing, in some ways, she was just the, the kind of fun territory for me. Um, and she's also just crazy, so I didn't, but I love her, you know, so I affection for her, but um, she's so different and out there, I could just go with whatever, wherever she was going. Um, and, um, but as, and then, and then it turned out to be Alexandra's story, which I didn't know until very late in the novel, but I really think it is her story, so I love her very much as, as being, you know, the, the one who, kind of is what who guides what the story is about. Um, 
And then I think in reading, I've actually fallen in love with Eleanor because she just has this strong, crazy, so sure of herself voice. And, and I've only really discovered that more, or come to appreciate that more as I've read her and heard her voice come out of my mouth. So it's been, you know, it's been a progression, yeah. 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 I mean, I guess she was. Uh, she's always the one who's doing things like, "Oh my God, I can't believe she's doing this," you know. And and she has sort of the most um, kind of power and prestige in the world. So in a way, I hold her more responsible for the crazy behavior that she has, and I sort of do struggle with. Oh, you've got to be kidding! She's doing that now, but wow, she's doing that now, and look what happens, you know. Um, so, but I, I, I also have, as the book progresses, I also realize she's very vulnerable, and you know, and that's a really big, important part of her. So, you know, I don't, I, I do have a lot of affection for all of them. <laughs> I struggle with all of them at all times, but yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, I, I started out being very interested in the whole, um, you know, it's, a, it's an issue that's been addressed in a lot of places, but the, how we're so obsessed with re-sculpting our faces and, um, and sort of controlling how we look. And it's not just through plastic surgery, it's, um, you know, how we look and in terms of wearing makeup and all that and controlling that and how it's sort of this incredibly profound thing about your identity. Um, and I sort of... Uh, you know, because it's what you see in the mirror every day. It's visually who you are, and and we're sort of crazy about that. I think in our culture, and I I think the house thing to me was a similar. Um, it, it was a, it sort of was a mirror to that because I think, um, and I say this as someone who who does who, who just went through a process of having an architect redraw her house. Right. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to remodel it, but it was very pleasurable. But I think we're very obsessed with. Um, Resculpting home and home is an incredibly profound place to change and yet we're doing this gutting all the time and taking out what's old and putting in something that's new that we've seen in a magazine somewhere because it looks it looks really nice and that's what everybody has and and yet we're meddling with this really profound thing because it's where we where we come home and we dream and we rest our souls and we're with the people that we love and um, and so it's this kind of crazy, crazy obsession that sort of makes sense, but it's sort of off base. And I saw it as a kind of a parallel to the whole beauty thing. So, did you have other questions about that? Was it something that? No, I yeah, yeah it's interesting. And I, you know, it seemed like the perfect foil for Eleanor because she has money, right? So she's obsessed with it. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I actually did. This was great. I did a book group the other night. A friend of mine had um, all his friends read this book and then asked me to come. And people were talking about this very thing. And, and you know, I, I think I try not to think, about, if I think about it too hard when I'm writing it, then I just, sometimes, sometimes it's good to be very careful and um, disciplined. But other times, you just, I find I just stifle it if I overthink it. So I think that I didn't think try to overanalyze that, but they brought up this point that um, 
that Alexandra is actually the one who comes in and fixes it when Eleanor can't. And I actually, and it's so obvious to me when they said that, and I was like, well, I never really thought about that, <laughs> you know? No, I never, it was never, it was just like, well, of course, I don't know. I suppose I thought about it in a different way, but I never thought about it that way, that it was the thing that she she could never really fix, and he just naturally, she just naturally comes in and fixes it. So, um, yeah, anyway. <laughs> so... Yeah. I, I, when I read it, I heard echoes of, of other authors in terms of your language, ah. also in the unusual structure. Is there anyone in particular that influenced you in, in your writing for this? Um, well, I'm, I, I hate, you know, some of the writers that I love are just so incredible. I, it, it's, it feels like a big thing to compare myself to them, but um, big influences. Jean Riss, I'm a big fan of Jean Riss, mostly because she just um, takes you to the edge of human experience, like this horrific edge, and just makes you look at it. <laughs> and there's no turning back, and you just look right at it, and there's no, there's no making it pretty. And um, so, and her, and her real, I mean, she wrote in, well, like the early, her first novels were, in, I think, in the 20s, and she wrote this incredibly modern, beautiful, stark prose that you would never guess in reading it, this was back in the 20s that she wrote it. Um, so I was very moved by that. Um, and hmm, that would be a main one, but uh, I don't know, was there someone, was there someone who came to mind that? Uh, <laughs> there's, there's, there's a few things that come to mind, but yeah. I, I emailed you and said that I thought that was, that it, I was struck that it was set in Southern California, that there's love yeah. in California. Southern California yeah. girl still in you, even yeah. if you haven't lived here for so long. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it also occurred to me too that there's other Southern California writers that it that it echoed for yeah. me too in terms of the sentences and the poet the poeticism of it and and I think of those as the Southern California sort of style. Yeah. And so interesting. I that it was set here and it felt like that to me. If I hadn't known you and known other things, I still would have I would have assumed you lived here. That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's interesting when you said that. It's funny, and this is one thing that's really nice about coming back to LA to read, because I moved to Seattle like 20 years ago, and I wasn't a writer when I moved, not a fiction writer when I moved there. And I, that all my fiction writing evolved while I was living in Seattle, and I love living there, and I think it's incredibly supportive to writers. But I cannot write about anything but California. <laughs> all everything that I write is based in California, and you know I still love California. Maybe it's having the distance and being able to. Um, sort of have that be a mysterious space that helps me write about it. Um, but I'm sure also that literature, um, and I'm, nothing's coming to mind right away, but I'm sure just that tone of Southern California literature is, is embedded in me and it affects me, so, yeah. Maybe it's something about here that, that people end up writing about it in a specific way, too. Yeah. It's often nonlinear and... Yeah, that could be. And sort of packed with conflicting adjectives and... Hmm. Yeah. Poetry. Yeah. I don't mind being Southern California writer. That's great. <laughs> Any more questions? Okay, um, I'm gonna set up a little table here. It'll take me a minute. You can watch me fumble with it. It'll be funny. Um, and then we'll. You've been listening to the Skylight Books Author Reading Series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashling and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace or Facebook or at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.